This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. In 1976, director Martin Scorsese and star Robert De Niro gave the world a gritty look into the underbelly of 1970s New York City. In 2022, we try the first of two new expressions from a world-famous brand. The film is Taxi Driver. The whiskey is Jack Daniel's Triple Mash. And we'll review them both. This is the Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are kicking off a mini-series of Martin Scorsese films with his 1976 masterpiece, Taxi Driver. Who? (laughs) Right? (laughs) Never heard of him. The thing I love about where we're at in season six is because so much of our first few seasons was just kind of drawn out of a hat. You know, like we had a list of movies, but we were picking them at random that we watched The Aviator in season one. And now we're not getting Mm -hmm. around to Taxi Driver and Raging Bull until season six. It's just chaos. And I love it. Yeah, we've multiple times we've said that The Aviator is like his unsung masterpiece. But now we're getting to the two that people probably (laughs) most know him for and would most often say are his actual masterpieces. His sung masterpieces. Yes. (laughs) The fat lady lady has sung on these two. That's for sure, man. I know for a fact that this was your first time seeing Taxi Driver. And I just want to set the stage here because I haven't watched this movie in a long, long time. And I remember the first time I watched it, I was probably about, I'd say, 18 And uh, it just didn't click with me. And I, you know, I recognize that it was kind of a disturbing film, but it didn't really move me emotionally. And I have just kind of always been hesitant to revisit it. I think I've seen it maybe one other time (laughs) since then. But I told Brad other movies you hate, you'll watch like 12 times. Yeah. And you're like, "Ah, I just I still don't get it. I tried so hard. (laughs) And I warned Brad coming into this episode. Hey, I might have a lot of hot takes on this universally regarded movie. You know, I, I'm not a huge fan of it. I don't think it works very well. It's, you know, it's just doesn't hold up well for me. So go into it knowing that I might come in and crap on it. And then I watched it again and oh my gosh, Brad, does this thing not only (laughs) hold up, but it is, it is so effective and still so absolutely disturbing. And I, I think it's incredibly prescient for our modern times. Oh, 100%. Like the, the story that it tells is just vastly important with what is going on in our world today. And uh, yeah, this movie's got legs, man. It, it's holding up well. All right. Well, let's get into talking about it. But before we do, we want to give a quick plug for our Patreon. Whether you're listening for the first time or you're a longtime listener, we'd love to encourage you to go to patreon.com slash film whiskey. 
where you can find three different tiers of support for our podcast, a $3, a $5, and a $7 a month tier. At each tier, you get special bonus perks, but across all tiers, you get access to our special Discord server that Brad and I are on every single day, talking exclusively with our patrons. So please consider a donation to us or a long-term subscription at patreon.com slash filmwhiskey. Brad, the plugs are out of the way. That means it's time for Brad Explains, the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the film that he has just seen, often for the first time, and that is the case today. So, Brad, we're putting 60 seconds on the clock. Can you break down the plot of this movie? Can I Can I ask you a question right before we get into Oh, that? do it. it. It counts against your time, though. Okay, that's, that's fine with me. <laughs> uh, so, every single, like blurb I read about this movie will always say Vietnam War veteran mm-hmm. uh whatchamacallit. Do they do they like talk about that blatantly in the movie? It's in the very first scene when he's applying for a job as a taxi driver. And I think it's meant to be something that you bear in mind that is affecting his kind of psychosis, okay. but it's not touched on after that. Okay. I I watched it over two different viewings. And so I, I think I'd probably just forgot that because like every single one is like mentally unstable taxi or veteran. And I'm like, <laughs> man, I don't remember them saying that he was a veteran, but I just I just forgot. So yeah, it was just, it was just in the first few lines. And then uh, he's because oh, he's because the guy says like, oh, I was a Marine, too. Yeah. And, and then, and then I think he on. says it again to the Secret Service agent when he's trying to be chummy with him in that one scene. And, okay. and then he's not impressed. He and says then he like, gives oh, yeah, the, I was the in the fake Marines. name. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Well, we've given All away right. two key scenes, but none of the plot. So let's, none let's of the jump plot. into Brad Explains here. <laughs> I'll see if I can keep that up here. <laughs> uh, Taxi Driver is about a young man who was a veteran in the Vietnam War. Uh, he was a Marine. We know it for sure. Uh, and he is living in New York City. He is all kind of on his on his own. He doesn't really have any friends or family. He's having trouble sleeping. And so he takes a job working as a taxi driver, um, just trying to find anything to do to to take up his time and, and find sleep at the end of the day. In his forays into the nightlife of New York City, he encounters all sorts of really bad, seedy, dark people. And starts growing an obsession for cleaning up the streets. He eventually meets a girl that he likes, tries to take her on a few dates. Doesn't go very well when he takes her to a porno. But she is working for this senator who's trying to become president named Palantine. Uh, By the end of the film, he has met this prostitute girl who's 12 years old. Five seconds. And he sees him as as her guardian angel. And he tries to kill the senator, but can't. And so he kills her pimp and his posse instead. All right. I think you did a pretty good job for trying to summarize all the different threads that are going on <laughs> in this movie. Here's one or two. I forgot to mention that one of my favorite actors of all time of the movie is in the movie, uh, Peter Boyle. Peter Boyle. This movie has, a, has a very good cast. And I think we need to talk, uh, first of all, about the cast that they assembled on what was essentially a shoestring budget for this film. I think Scorsese was allotted like $1.2 million or something like that for this movie. Uh, he goes over budget and spends $1.9 million. So, you know, he gets Ooh. in trouble for that. But He's like the Spielberg of uh, overspending. So, so you mean just Spielberg? 
Yeah, he's just Spielberg. (laughs) (laughs) So for for that money, he gets Robert De Niro. He gets Jodie Foster. He gets Sybil Shepard. He gets Albert Brooks, Peter Boyle, Harvey Keitel. I mean, it's a really great all time cast here, Brad. Yeah, I in my research for Two Facts and a Falsehood, I read that De Niro agreed to do the movie for 35 grand. And this is before he won the Oscar for The Godfather. And after he won the Oscar, everybody on on the production crew was like, well, I think we're going to lose De Niro because he's going to ask for more money. And De Niro was like, "Nah, man, I, I signed on the dotted line for 35K and, and that's what I'll take. Yeah. Yeah. He had worked with Scorsese before on the movie Mean Streets. And then after that, Godfather 2 came out and kind of exploded him onto the scene. But the funny thing is, he said that when he was doing his research for this role, he took on a certain number of weeks where he was working as a cabbie at night to try to get into the mindset. He was interviewing uh, veterans and trying to pick up the Midwestern accent from some of them. And he said that in all those nights he was driving a cab, only one person recognized who he was. So he said, like, yeah, I had won an Oscar, but I wasn't this universally recognized person that I think everyone assumed I was. And yeah, he was true to his word. He did this movie for 35K, as did Sybil Shepard. Sybil Shepard kind of found her stardom a few years before this in The Last Picture Show. She gets romantically involved with that movie's director, Peter Bogdanovich. And after making a few movies with him, uh, she gets labeled box office poison. And so while they're writing and casting this movie, they're like, we really want a Sybil Shepard type for this movie. But they never actually reached out to Sybil Shepard. And eventually somebody was like the word got back to her representatives and they kind of called Scorsese and they were like, hey, why don't you just ask us for Sybil Shepard? And they're like, (laughs) well, will she work for thirty five thousand dollars? Like, there's no way. And they're like, yes, she'll do it. (laughs) <laughs> She'll take anything. Yeah, and that's exactly what it was. And that's how they got those two to be in this movie for, you know, such little money. I don't know if we've ever started off an episode with so many, like, tidbits. Yeah, you know, it's free I, with your tuition when at the yeah. Film and Whiskey University. <laughs> I'm curious, Bob. This is just way out of left field. Are you ready? Yeah. Have you ever ridden in an actual, like, yellow checkered taxi cab in your life? I have a couple times. Yeah. I have never once done that. You know, I was I was going to bring this up later, but how do you think this movie plays today in like the era of Uber? Because I I think this movie would be fascinating if it was set in the modern times with Uber drivers. I agree. It's really not that much different. I mean, you just check in on your phone as opposed to anything else. But like. I'm sure that Uber drivers in New York City are carrying around pimps and prostitutes and violent people. And Mm -hmm. New York has done a really good job of trying to preserve the taxi industry in New York explicitly. So, like, there wasn't very much about this film that felt out of date to me. Like, it was very clearly a product of the 1970s and that kind of, like, festering rage that was happening in in the post-Nixon years. But like you said, man, they, they could have lifted this and applied it to today and it would have worked just as well. Which I'm not sure if the city of New York would like to say about itself, but uh, from everything I hear, yeah, this is a a pretty accurate representation of (laughs) New York City. It certainly was in the 70s. And like Manhattan was just a hellhole, especially in, you know, in that 42nd Street area. Scorsese said that it was like shooting in Dante's Inferno, that he was legitimately scared. And this was a guy that grew up in New York. It's Mm. and when you watch movies that are about New York City, 
even Woody Allen's Manhattan, which is a movie that tries to glamorize and romanticize it. He even he has to make jokes about how the streets are just filled with litter and rats and trash. And New York, you know, even today with the rat problem they have is worlds better than it was back in the 70s. So, like, you know, if you think it's bad now, I guess just watch this movie and find out <laughs> right now for yourself. <laughs> I was I was going to say, how many people do you think in our audience have seen this? That's a good question. And so it goes back to when this movie came out, they were not expecting anyone to like or watch this movie. All of the producers dragged their feet. No one wanted to take on this script. It was too violent. They forced cuts to it. Scorsese almost got an X rating on this movie. And then it comes out. And lo and behold, Paul Schrader, the screenwriter, said that he showed up for the premiere of the movie, which they held at noon in one theater in New York. And word of mouth had already gotten out about it. And there was a line around the block. And it was a bunch of people that were basically in Travis Bickle cosplay with like mohawks. And, you know, so they were all very happy that the movie was a hit, but it was almost like this indicates something that is even more disturbing and dark that people are coming to see this dressed up like this guy is their superhero, you know? Yeah. Anyway, all that to say, I think this movie has become very famous over the years. And I would expect a lot of our audience would have seen it, but it kind of gets back into that like fight club conversation we had where I don't think people like I know people watch this movie and they know that it's about a guy who's losing his mind. But sometimes I think people watch movies where an unreliable narrator is the key figure and they don't keep in mind that he's unreliable. They take him at his word. And, And that's where I think people can watch this movie and get kind of lost in the shuffle of it where you're not just watching it and thinking like, wow, this guy is out of his freaking mind. You're watching it and you're convinced, like he's convincing some people that what he's doing is justified. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, no, I, I think that you could probably call it like fight club syndrome. Yeah. Or if you want to go with the most early, it would be taxi driver syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> the other part of, of this film that was fascinating to me as we were watching it was how influential it is in the world of media mm-hmm. like like not even just cinema but like television uh anything else you can get your hands on taxi driver has vastly influenced it i i was really blown away for sure and i think the most recent example and probably the most egregious one is the movie joker which I I saw after its theatrical release because I just I didn't feel like going to see it in the theater. I was already out on the superhero thing at that point. Brad, you still haven't seen Joker. And I remember kind of railing to you after the fact that movie like sucks, dude. <laughs> and I know that I'm probably going to piss a lot of people off <laughs> by saying that. But the director of that movie, Todd Phillips, is the guy who made the hangover movies. And, you know, now he's trying to be like a serious filmmaker. And it is almost a shot for shot remake of two Scorsese movies, Taxi Driver, and then one he made a few years after that called The King of Comedy. And they're both about these mentally unstable people who ultimately commit acts of violence. And and Joker, it borrows a little bit from King of Comedy, but for the most part, it's just Taxi Driver. It is like such a hack job of Taxi Driver that I went when I went back and watched this this time, I got even more angry because there was just no <laughs> reason to remake this movie. And when you get around to Joker, it's literally just like if if a less talented person remade somebody's great movie and the only reason people gravitated towards it was they were like, 
<laughs> this is a crappy remake of Taxi Driver, but now we're going <laughs> to pretend that it's the origin story of this guy that you like. And they're like, yeah. oh, perfect. Like, it, dude, uh, see, I'm getting off track. Joker sucked how is what I'm trying to say. How do you, how do you feel about Bohemian Rhapsody <laughs> while, while we're on? <laughs> oh, man. No, I'm with you, man. I, I think it's wild how the American memory of movies kind of disappears after a while. Mm. And, you know, it's there for me, too. Like, I had never seen Network. I'd never seen Taxi Driver. Like, there's a lot of famous movies from the 70s that were super impactful that I didn't know about because I haven't seen them. So I, I guess I'm curious, then, is it important that we get the same type of stories done again? Or is it better to like just point people back and say, hey, go watch Taxi Driver. It's a better version of Joker. I think that's a great question. I, I You know, like in instances like this, I feel like it's OK to point somebody back to Taxi Driver because all of the underlying messages still ring true. And, you know, we didn't really have the word incel back in 1976, <laughs> but it's it still is kind of the best word to describe Travis in this movie. He is frustrated by a lot of things, but deep down at the core he's very sexually frustrated he is he is not able he has no game with the ladies obviously mm -hmm. and he has these these perverted kind of ways of trying to find that erotic connection and when he's thwarted in that way i mean his his immediate reaction after sybil shepherd stops taking his phone calls is to go into her place of work in a very threatening way and then tell her like you're in hell and you're going to burn in hell like everyone else. Or he says like you're going to die in hell. It's really, really I keep using the word disturbing, but like there was an unease throughout this movie. The incel thing obviously still rings true in this day and age in a way that like I don't know if Schrader intended that to be the primary point of Travis's frustration but that's kind of what has has aged the best about it. I think we need to talk about the performances and stuff because I really think we could spend the entire episode just talking about the philosophy of the movie and all that stuff. So I I want to get into some of these performances, some of the cinematography. I, I just want to know what you think, Bob. Who, who do you want to start with? Who do you want to talk about in this film? I mean, let's just go from the top down. This is one of De Niro's best performances. And it's because for so much of the movie, he is playing against the type that he would come to embody in the eighties, nineties and two thousands. You know, as you get older and you start taking on roles that are not necessarily prestige roles, De Niro really leans into the meet the parents version of De Niro, which is mm -hmm. fine. And it's really funny. And I think analyze this is a fantastic comedy. Like I'm cool with that gangster persona, but when you go back and watch his works in the early 70s, mid 70s, early 80s, how much of a chameleon he truly was. This guy is so difficult to spend time with. He is so cringy throughout the movie to the point where, like, I had to avert my eyes sometimes when he was trying to be normal in certain scenes. And it's just I mean, it's such a masterful performance, Brad. Yeah, that Scorsese said that one of his favorite and what he thought to be the most important scene of the movie was when uh, Bickle is trying to call Betsy after their their botched date where he, I, as I mentioned before, just so everybody understands, he tried to take her to watch a porno with him. 
as their first date. Like that's that's how clueless this man is. And he's he's calling her and he's he's on a payphone in a hallway. Um, and if you don't know what a payphone is, you can Google it. Uh, and he's talking to her and he and he's, you know, he's kind of begging like, hey, uh, like, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize you wouldn't like that. Like, like, can't we go out? We'll get coffee sometime. It'll it'll be better. We'll get dinner or something. And and the camera slowly moves away from him and like looks down this really long, empty hallway. And it it almost communicates this idea that like Bickle has no one. Like, he doesn't even have a phone in his house to call anybody if he had anyone to call. And the one person he does have to call is rejecting him at this moment. Mm-hmm. And it's so awkward and unbearable that the camera can't even stay on him. Yeah, for sure. And I, I just I just think that the cinematography there is is brilliant. But De Niro's performance is so perfectly cringeworthy. It really does remind me of like Edward Norton mm-hmm. in Fight Club. Um, even some of the uh, the dialogue, or sorry, not the dialogue, the narration that that De Niro does. It feels like Coppola was trying to imitate in uh, Apocalypse Now a few years mm, later. Yeah, and I, I just think that De Niro sets a tone for so many different actors and directors in this film. One of the things I love the most about that voiceover narration, and it's when Travis is narrating what he's writing in his diary, is that you realize about halfway through the movie that the diary isn't even representative of what he's truly thinking. Like it, you can you start to understand that, OK, whether this guy is like suicidal or just planning to murder a bunch of people, he's leaving this behind not as a window into his psyche, but as what he thinks people want to read about him. Like it's it's very mm-hmm. performative. And he starts to do this thing where he'll write a line and, you know, so you hear him saying it out loud and then he realizes, no, that's not how I want to write that. And so he'll rewrite it again or he'll say it in a way that's not convincing. And then he'll say it again to make himself kind of believe what he's writing. And it's such a great picture into the way he's unraveling because it's not even representative of what he's truly thinking. It's just this very performative, you know, activity. Honestly, this is this is going to sound a little disturbing, Bob. Are you ready? Yeah. I kind of have identified with that throughout my my life. Oh, where really? I'm like, yeah, like I just I don't like journaling very much. I agree and with a that. A lot of a lot of times it's because I'm like writing something and like, I don't know if I'm just like too far into my own head, but a lot of times I'll write something and be like, well, I don't know. Is that really what I think yeah. or really what I believe? And, you know, and I'll and you keep writing and and it's something that's gotten better for me with practice over the years. But on a very basic <laughs> level, I kind of I kind of get where he's coming from. I understand like, what you're saying now, but I have to say, like, I was very worried when I finished talking <laughs> about the murder suicide thing. And you were like, hey, man, I got to say. I understand where he's coming from, and I was I, like, I, it, "With what aspect, Brad?" <laughs> I get, it. I get it, man. <laughs> All right, so I want to talk Sybil Shepherd for a minute because I've read a lot about the production of this movie. I actually got quite a few books out of the library and started doing research before I watched it again, just in case I hated it, so that I had something to bring to the table. And Sybil Shepherd was really disliked on the set of this movie. Uh, De Niro really 
disrespected her as a co-star and just didn't think she was up to the task and so treated her like garbage. I guess Scorsese was kind of mean to her, but everybody was fawning over 12-year-old Jodie Foster's talent. And so Sybil Shepard was just really bummed out throughout the making of this movie and thought everybody was mean to her. And the fact that she was only making 35 grand. Yeah, that probably didn't help either. But it made me kind of take it a little easier on her because I do think that there are points where her performance is very good. And then there are also points where I feel like she's not being given enough direction by Scorsese behind the camera. But knowing the backstory, part of me just wonders if he was just throwing the camera on her and being like, all right, cool. Good enough. We'll move on to the next thing now. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I, I feel like she's a good actress and I've seen her be good in other things. And she's good here, but it's not always consistently good. There's definitely peaks and valleys to that performance. The the moments where she's most believable is where she is trying to get away from De Niro. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that those moments are are really, really nice bits of acting. But I'm with you that overall, I, you definitely see her in the story as this angelic figure that is that Bickle portrays as his one hope for redemption. Uh, and so with that in mind, I, I guess I wish she had a little more opportunity to portray that theme for him as a character. And you're right. She doesn't have a ton of screen time and doesn't really have a lot to sink her teeth into. And I, so I don't know if it's her performance or Scorsese, but I, I'm with you, man. I, I, I liked Sybil Shepard. I thought she did a good job, but we either needed more of her or what we did have of her just needed to be a little better. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move to Jodie Foster, 12 years old when this movie is made. Obviously, that that becomes kind of controversial when you see the the movie. She's playing a 12-year-old hooker, and uh, this movie is very violent and speaks about, you know, the the sex work trade very frankly. And uh, Brad, I got to say, man, she's she's just fantastic. She has an ease to her as a 12-year-old that there is no hint of I'm a child actor and I'm going to do my cutesy mm-hmm. thing like there is it she it feels so lived in and so believable that you forget you're watching someone that young well and if you if you've seen enough Jodie Foster you could like close your eyes and you're like oh yeah that's Jodie Foster right. and then you like look at the screen and I texted you this halfway through and I was like it's really weird to hear Jodie's Foster's like sounds like an adult voice mm-hmm. coming out of a 12 year old that, mm-hmm. you know, like looks kind of like Jodie Foster. But if anybody looked at a 12 year old picture of themselves compared to an adult, you know, y- you might not always know that 12 <laughs> year old you was adult you. And so, but yeah, Jodie Foster was stunningly good in this movie. And if, uh, if the cast and crew were kind of fawning over her, I can kind of understand why she, she was like simply spectacular. All right. Anybody else you want to talk about in particular? I mean, you know, Albert Brooks shows up for a little bit in this movie. Peter Boyle kind of goes in and out. Harvey Keitel really only has a presence in the last half hour of the movie. They're all good. And I think they all serve their purpose. But those are really the three key figures in the movie that we've already discussed. Yeah. I mean, if we're really honest about it, Bob, the, this is a one actor movie. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, there's other people in the film, but De Niro, he doesn't just carry the film like this film is about him. Yeah. And his, well, his character, anyone else just doesn't really matter. I I will say uh, one of my favorite performances was the uh, Secret Service agent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that he has that conversation <laughs> with. 
<laughs> the way he like slowly gains interest and then like the way they both fake being excited with each other yeah. is is so freaking funny and it's so necessary in the midst of this really dour film. Yeah. And it's funny in a way that's also very unsettling because mm-hmm. Travis yep. really thinks he's being convincing at playing a normal person. And it is so obviously not a normal person. Like, <laughs> like you, you understand what the Secret Service agent is doing when he's like, oh, let me take down your home address the second he starts doing it. And of course, Travis realizes it immediately, too, that he has struck yeah. out on being normal yet again. Uh, but you're right. That scene is just pure gold. I want to talk for a minute about Scorsese's scene in this movie. So he was not going to be playing the role that he does. And it's, you know, it's kind of an extended cameo. He gets in the in the cab and makes De Niro pull over. And they're kind of staking out this apartment where Scorsese's wife is cheating on him. And Scorsese starts describing in graphic detail how he's going to murder his wife and mutilate her body. And what's so unsettling about it, Brad, and so effective, I think, is that it comes in the exact right place in the movie that you know it's going to have the maximum amount of impact on Travis' character. Because it's right after he gets rejected by Sybil Shepard. She's not returning his calls. He goes to her office. He blows up at her. And then Albert Brooks has him chased by the cops. And the very next scene is Scorsese's character, who is clearly having this mental breakdown of his own, confessing to Travis what he's going to do. And you never see whether he does it or not. Like, it just cuts to the next day, which, again, kind of gets you into the psyche of these guys who drive taxis, that they just see some every night, and they just have to learn to live with that weird traumatic Mm -hmm. stuff they see. But what makes it so unsettling is that you can tell that in a certain way, Travis is being indoctrinated like Scorsese's character, whether or not he goes through with it, you know, and I would like to think that he didn't. And let's just assume for a second that he didn't. He he is confessing this really deep hurt that comes out of a what he assumed to be a loving, long lasting, stable relationship. And what's really disturbing is that you can tell Travis is kind of empathizing, but Travis is empathizing because he thinks that Betsy and him are a thing that when they never really were a thing, like he's applying this hurt and this like distorted view of retaliation in his own life, but he's never really had a normal relationship in his whole life anyway. And I think that's really where the tipping point happens for Travis and Scorsese plays that scene as an actor, I think, really beautifully. And you, you see that for Travis, his motivation is like, well, I, I met this Palantine guy and he was utterly unconvincing that he would clean up the streets. And Betsy needs a real strong man who can clean up the streets. So I, I'm going to be that man. I'm, I'm going to stop taking any pills. I'm going to work out. I'm going to buy guns. I'm going to become this hyper masculine character that can clean up the streets uh, because that's that's what will win me, Betsy. Mm. And I, I think that the other fascinating thing about that scene for me was that when Scorsese's character is telling him, you probably think I'm crazy, right? Like the audience, at least me sitting there was like, yeah, you do sound crazy. <laughs> and then you see in Bickle's eyes that he doesn't think no. he's crazy. And you're like, oh, shit. 
yeah. this this movie's going downhill quick. Well, and every time Travis would have an opportunity to tell the guy, no, don't do that. He doesn't. He just sits there and absorbs nope. and listens. And yep. and that, yep. yeah, that's where it really started to get like I got a knot in my stomach. Before we go to break, I want to talk just a little bit more about those motivations from Travis. And there's a few, I think, really key scenes. And it starts really at the beginning of the movie with that first narration where he talks about how the scum comes out at night. I wish a real rain would come and wash away the filth forever. And it really sets the stage for the fact that Travis sees himself. He sees the world around him in this kind of like biblical gothic horror way that there's, you know, like he's seeing damnation around him and he sees himself as this kind of avenging angel. But he's so blind to the fact that even though he sees everybody else as the scum of the earth, he is he's right there with them. Like he's he's the one going to porn theaters after he gets off work every night. He's the one having these like violent ideations. He's the one who thinks that a normal thing to do would be to take somebody to the porn theater with him. And the more he gets rejected and the more that kind of self-loathing builds in him, he refuses to acknowledge it. And he just lashes out more at the world around him. And I think it's a really beautiful Schrader does such a good job. The screenwriter of building that in a way that it never has to be vocalized because of course, Travis never realizes it about himself, but you see that he is, he's the scum of the earth. <laughs> and, uh, and the more that that is kind of made clear to him, the more he pushes it away and makes everyone else more of the enemy. But the great thing is the script doesn't excuse all the other people. Like, it, it never acts like Palantine isn't the scum of the earth or Betsy or the the boyfriend who, well, the guy who wants to be her boyfriend. Like, you, you get the sense that nobody is excused from being the scum of the earth in this movie, but you have a, a protagonist who is trying to see the world as black and white as he can so that he can try and make sense of it because mm -hmm. it, it just wouldn't click for him if there wasn't a right and a wrong with him seeing himself as right and everyone else is wrong for sure and then after there's a there's another key scene in the movie that i don't think ever really gets talked about and it's right in the middle of the film where travis has bought all these guns illegally and you know he's planning to do something with them and he just happens to have a gun on him while he's in a convenience store late at night that gets robbed and he just shoots the guy in the face basically or in the neck and then, t you know, tells the, the the bodega guy, hey, I don't have a permit for this. The guy says, I got it. I, you know, thanks. Thanks for saving my life. And Travis takes off and they kind of linger on the owner of the bodega who takes a crowbar to the dead guy's body in a very brutal way, which, again, I think Scorsese and Schrader do such a good job of highlighting that Travis may be crazy, but like everyone in this day and age is and it's this really perverse kind of touch at the end of that scene that then leads into the next scene of Travis pointing his his gun full of blanks at everybody that comes across his TV screen. And you can tell that him just being in that place where he did something that he thought was heroic is feeding into this idea that he now sees himself even more as the guy who has to go clean up the streets by murdering a bunch of people. Oh, dude, you know what I just realized? What's that? The uh, the scene where he buys the guns, mm -hmm. he doesn't buy them on the first floor of the building. No. They're on like the sixth or seventh floor, 
And when he's when he's pointing the gun, he's pointing it down at the streets, yeah. at random people on the streets, as if he is an angel sent from God to clean up the streets themselves. So that scene actually was inserted or at least, you know, the the pointing it at people down on the streets was inserted by Scorsese because a director friend of theirs, John Milius, went with Paul Schrader to buy guns one day. And Schrader, you know, we can get into this in the back half of the episode, but Schrader was cuckoo, especially at this time of his life. He was he yes. was Travis Bickle. And I still don't know how I feel about Paul Schrader in a lot of ways. I don't like a lot of his movies, but uh, Schrader gets this 38 pistol handed to him. And Milius says that he saw a girl over by the tennis rackets, uh, sighted down the barrel of the gun at her head and tracked her around the store as she moved, clicking the trigger a few times. Milius said, if there was ever a psycho you shouldn't sell a gun to, Paul Schrader was it. I told this story to, <laughs> I told this story to Scorsese and he put it in Taxi Driver. So that came from real life. That is wild to me. And I, I think it's incredibly effective at what he's trying to portray in the film. But yeah, I read some disturbing things about Paul Schrader <laughs> in uh, the little bit of research I did for this movie. So I want to get into that later. But right now, I want to drink some whiskey, Bob. Yeah, I think we need to take a break. This is getting kind of dark, man. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to open this bottle of Jack Daniels Triple Mash. Let's, let's share a pour here. What do you say? Let's get to it, Bob. Lately, I've been finding myself pulling whiskeys off the shelf that are consistently unique, uh, ones that tell a good story every time I pop the cork, and I have to say that Doc Swinson's is absolutely top tier when it comes to a fascinating pour. What separates Doc Swinson's from the rest of the pack is their unrelenting goal of always letting the whiskey shine. No matter what whiskey comes through the front door at Doc's, their team of tasters will blend and finish it into something that is deliciously memorable. The beautiful thing about a good blended whiskey is that oftentimes, with proper care and attention, they turn into a whiskey that is truly greater than the sum of their parts. Whether you're trying their Alter Ego, Blender's Cut, or Exploratory Series, you are guaranteed to have a phenomenal experience with Doc Swinson's whiskey. You can find them online at docswhiskey.com. That's D-O-C-S whiskey.com. All right, today we are checking out Jack Daniel's Triple Mash Blended Straight Whiskey. Now, this is how many mashes they use. <laughs> they use triple, triple the mash, triple the fun, <laughs> triple the flavor. <laughs> this is one of two expressions that Jack Daniel's just put out in the last few months, along with their Jack Daniel's Bonded. It's retailing for about $35. They're both 100 proof. So we're starting off with the Triple Mash. Next week, we'll do just the regular Jack Daniel's Bonded. This is a blend of three different kinds of bottled and bond whiskey. It's 60% Jack Daniels Tennessee Rye, 20% Jack Daniels Tennessee Whiskey, and 20% Jack Daniels American Malt. Now, the malt is made of 100% malted barley, so we're going to get a little bit of that, uh, that barley flavor in here, Brad. But I like that it's 60% rye, or like, you know, not 60% of the overall mash bill is rye, but 60% of the blend is from their rye which I wasn't expecting. I thought this was going to be more bourbon based. Yeah, I I was really excited to read about it. And I, I think that this is an opportunity for Jack Daniels to expand their portfolio because it, it really felt like for a long time that Jack Daniels was either something that you drank in a frat or they had like 
nicer expressions of that and mm-hmm. they called it gentleman jack and <laughs> and it was all like one line and i feel like they're finally starting to like you know spread their wings a little bit so i'm i'm pretty pumped about it bob yeah i mean you're right they they had the jack daniels and the gentleman jack and then you jumped way up into the single barrels and uh barrel selects and all those uh the, uh, and sinatra, sinatra select, yep exactly which i i actually have a bottle of bob i think you've mentioned it a couple times And you know what? Before we go any further, I already have to correct myself because I've already used the word bourbon to describe Jack Daniels. uh, And I know they'll send the pitchforks after me because it's not bourbon. It's Tennessee (laughs) Tennessee whiskey. It's a Tennessee sour whiskey, Bob. (laughs) All right, man, let's jump into this. What are you picking up on the nose here, Brad? Honestly, it's a really nice, refreshing sweet nose that has like green apple Mm -hmm. bits of peach and then on the back end of the nose i got like a little bit of a dusty peanut Mm. and i i was really intrigued by this i I think i'm gonna give it a seven and a half bob there's definitely some dustiness going on here and you know when when scents just trigger memories a little bit this has everything literally all the time bob right (laughs) that's like the whole point of that's what uh... that's what scents are for uh This has everything you were talking about. It's got the peanut. It's got lots of caramel on the front end. But that dustiness reminds me of the way that like our our gymnasium smelled in my elementary (laughs) school growing up. Like it just has that like uh, shoe scuffed floor smell to it. (laughs) It's Mm. like throwing me way back to when we would be in gym class on those little like square things that you would scoot around on the floor and play that one game. And doing the big parachute, stuff like that. So I feel kind of like five-year-old Bob is drinking this whiskey today, which is very I don't weird. Know, I don't know why. I just had like a image in my head of like the Family Guy cartoon animated version of Bob. <laughs> <laughs> like just flying around a gymnasium and getting like caught underneath the parachute. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> let's let's steer out of that and into this whiskey. Uh I'm going to go ahead and give this an 8 out of 10 on the nose. I like this a lot. Yeah, and then we jump into the taste. For me, that peanut and apple really sticks through strong. And then I got some additional things going on. I got a little bit of cinnamon and a little bit of caramel. I really like this a lot, Bob. I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. Oh, I like this too, Brad. This is like... It's like a waffle with peanut butter and maple syrup. And then on the back end, you're right, it's like fresh apple peel. It's a really good autumn, like leaning into autumn kind of a whiskey. It Man, I don't know if I'd call it apple cobbler. It's not quite that, but it's it's almost like a fresh stack of pancakes in the morning with a side of fresh, freshly cut apples. I'm, I might give this a nine out of 10. This is darn good. Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing so far is that it like drinks just really refreshing, like Almost like a Leinenkugel's Summer Shandy mm-hmm. is like the perfect summer beer. This like might be the perfect summer whiskey. Yeah. Even though it has some of those like autumnal notes on it, you're right. Mm-hmm. And I think if there's something you could ding it on, it's the mouthfeel because this is definitely a little bit thinner. It just doesn't seem like super viscous and oily. But going back to your point about it being the perfect summer whiskey, I'm okay with that because I feel like I could pour a sip of this out on my deck on a hot summer day and it Mm -hmm. wouldn't feel overwhelming to me. Yeah. And I think that the finish kind of loses a touch because of that lack of viscosity. 
But if I'm drinking this over a glass of ice or if I put it in the fridge for a little bit to get a little cooler, I don't think I really mind it having a shorter finish. Uh, it, it really is short and sweet. I get some oak. Um, I get a little bit of that apple coming through. Um, the the finish definitely isn't quite at the heights that the nose and palate was, but I'll still give it a six and a half on the finish. I'm going to give it a seven and a half. And I think that's actually being objective. A lot of times when we already know the price and we know that it is a lower priced whiskey, that's still really good. I think sometimes we skew all of our scores higher than they probably should be objectively. Uh, and I'm with you. This this isn't as good on the finish. It loses a little something. And there's just a slight hint of oak that goes a little bit bitter on the palate. But overall, this is still really, really good. And that takes us into balance. Now, knowing that the finish is a little bit off from the rest of the experience, you're not I'm you know, it's not going to get a perfect balance score. But for what this is. You know, a few weeks ago, we did a bonus episode where we talked about bottled and bond whiskeys and which ones would be good gateways into bottled and bond. This would be right up there, man. This is such an easy sipper. I think you could give this to someone who's used to only drinking 80 proof whiskey and they might notice just a little bit of a difference, but it's definitely not something that's super harsh. There's not a ton of burn going down. I think this is extremely well balanced, Brad. I'm going to give it a nine out of 10. Yeah, I I think that for me, the lack of complexity is where I'm going to ding it the most. Uh, I'll give it a 7 out of 10 on balance. I, I think it's overall really solid in this category. There, there's a few interesting notes throughout, but it, it's not complex enough for me to, to score it much higher. Um, but in the state of Ohio, you can buy, weirdly enough, you can buy 700 milliliters of this for $37. Yep. Or one liter of it for $46. You said they've raised it to $37? Uh, yes, that's what I saw. That's crazy. Yeah, so it just came out, like I said, a month, month and a half ago in Ohio. And I bought it the first weekend they were selling it. And it was $34. And I heard they already raised the price because it was flying off shelves too much. So they've already raised it $3, which is crazy to me. Because I was going to give this like a 9 out of 10 on value. At $37, I don't know that I can do that. And the 700 milliliter thing is because about a year ago, a lot of the major producers announced that they were going to start doing this because overseas, 750 mils is not the standard. It's usually 700 when they export whiskey from the US. So they're basically just downsizing everything and hoping we don't notice and then charging what they would charge for 750 instead. So knowing that you've got between an ounce and a half and two ounces of liquid less than you would have gotten in years past, and that it's $37, <laughs> I'm going to give it a little bit lower of a score. I am seeing online that it, it retails for about $33 everywhere else. So I'll still give this an 8 out of 10 on value. I think it's a 7 out of 10. I think this is a really intriguing, fun whiskey that I would keep on my shelf all the time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, $37. Like you said, Bob, if this was $33, $34, I, I would be 100% in, 9 out of 10, like really solid value. Um, but overall, I'm coming to a 36 out of 50. Wow, I am significantly higher than you. I'm at a 41.5 out of 50. Ooh. Look Which you, takes man. us to a 77 and a half out of 100 or a 38.75 out of 50. I would absolutely recommend try this at a bar or buy a bottle. I mean, I would just go whole hog here and say buy the bottle. Don't even worry about trying it at a bar. 
but it's cheap enough that you won't be gouged if you want to try it first. Yeah, I think that this is a really interesting, nice, sweet expression of Jack Daniels that is well above their baseline offering. Uh, I remember giving Jack Daniels to my wife one time just to help her see like a banana note in a whiskey. And her her notes were, it tasted like I drank a banana and then licked the carpet. (laughs) (laughs) And I still think that might be one of the best tasting notes I've ever heard in my life. Oh, my gosh. Uh, But this is, I I mean, Bob, would you not agree that this is way far above what Jack Daniels has to offer? And honestly, both of us like Jack Daniels well enough for what it is. Yeah. I mean, but Jack Daniels is probably $24 for a $750. So if you can get this for $10 more, I would say it's a no-brainer. Yep. Yeah. Go buy a bottle, everybody. All right, Brad. It's time for us to get back into talking about Taxi Driver. What do you say? I, I'm still just flabbergasted that I like this movie, Bob. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Let's get to it. Today's sponsor is a little bit of a departure from our usual area of expertise. And man, oh man, I was blown away by their product once we received it. I am talking about Manscaped. Now, if you're like me at all, you've probably seen the Manscaped ads and kind of wondered to yourself, like, do I really need like some sort of specialty trimmer to take care of my downstairs business? And I've just got to be honest, I was absolutely wrong. Uh, Their trimmer is called the Lawnmower 4.0, and I got to say, it is the Rolls Royce of trimmers. It's got a ceramic blade that reduces grooming mishaps, a wireless charging base, and an awesome flashlight that keeps things illuminated while you're working. And beyond all that, it's waterproof. This thing is really changing the game when it comes to below-the-belt hygiene. Now, this is just me talking about my experience, but this trimmer really is way beyond anything I've ever used to keep things neat and tidy. You can use our discount code FILMWHISKEY to get 20% off your order and free shipping. Head on over to manscaped.com and use code FILMWHISKEY to get 20% off free shipping, and you will be well on your way to hygiene heaven. All right, everybody, that was Jack Daniels' triple mash. Uh, easily a triple in, in my book, Bob. 100%. Like, that, that is an incredible whiskey. But now we need to get to an incredible segment, Two Facts and a Falsehood. Brad, I am two and two on the season with Two mm-hmm. Facts and a Falsehood. Uh, for those who don't know, this is the portion of the podcast where Brad presents three items, all of them as facts, and I have to guess which one of them is actually a lie. I, I really love that at the beginning of the episode, Brad, you said, uh, when I was doing my research for two facts and a falsehood, because like, it's, <laughs> I just love that you have to qualify it with like, now normally I wouldn't do research at all, but since <laughs> I have to do two facts and a falsehood. I just yeah. want everyone to know that's what I was doing research for. Oh, no. If I ever do research for any of the movies we watch, it's for <laughs> two facts and a falsehood. <laughs> All right. Let's see if I can finally get a winning record with these three items, Brad. All right. Fact number one, Paul Schrader, who wrote the movie, uh, he wrote the part of Travis Bickle with Jeff Bridges in mind, mm. uh, but he was in the movie Stay Hungry, uh, which was filmed during the filming of Taxi Driver, so he's unable to be in it. Fact Stay number two. Stay hungry. Stay hungry, Stay. Tony. <laughs> 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 oh, 
I, I, like seriously, Tony? every time we talk about Jeff Bridges, I'm just going to continue <laughs> doing that because it's for the people who've been listening since season one when we did Iron <laughs> yep. Man and just yep. did the whole second half of that episode in the Jeff Bridges <laughs> Kool-Aid Man Iron Man voice, which is the worst because he has such a great career. He's and an incredible actor, and we have to do Lebowski later this season. So I'm really worried do that I'm going to just <laughs> white Russian Tony. I'm the dude, Tony. <laughs> 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 All right, fact number two: uh, Peter Boyle auditioned to play Polly in in the movie Rocky, but was passed over for Burt Young, which led him to audition for and get the role of Wizard and Taxi Driver. Okay. Fact number three, Steven Spielberg visited the mu- the music recording sessions of this movie to tell composer Bernard Herman, 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 yeah. Bernard Herman, how much he admired his work. Uh, the famously prickly Herman responded, oh, yeah, then why do you always use John Williams for your films? <laughs> huh. This is a good one, Brad. You did it. You did a good job this time because. I can't tell which one's the falsehood. So Bernard Herman, I really want to talk about him at some point, but we might as well get it out of the way now. Very famous composer, maybe the second most famous composer of all time for movies behind Williams. He did all of Hitchcock's later movies. So we've talked about him in our Vertigo and our Psycho episodes. Mm-hmm. This score is fantastic. Uh, and it ended up being the last one that he recorded before he died. So like a, a huge monumental crowning achievement here for Bernard Herman. But I have no idea if Spielberg went and talked to him. Uh, the Peter Boyle thing, I think, is really plausible. So I'm going to I'm going to say that's a truth. Number one, I don't know if I could see Jeff Bridges playing this role, but I do know that Paul Schrader wrote this movie well before it got made by Scorsese and that he was kind of like not a huge fan of the fact that Scorsese was going to make it in the first place. So maybe that was true. I'm going to say three with Spielberg is the falsehood because Jaws had happened a year before and he hadn't made enough movies before that for Herman to know that that John Williams was his collaborator. So I'm going to say three is the falsehood. Three is a true. No, (laughs) man. So Spielberg had made two movies that uh, that Williams had scored, and they were really his only like two big movies at that point. It was Jaws and mm-hmm. one other one. I, I can't remember okay. what it was. Um, but yeah, that Spielberg in an interview talked about this and said that her, that Herman was basically like, "Why do you? Why are you using Williams for all your movies then?" <laughs> Good old Bernard Herman. So the falsehood was that Peter Boyle auditioned to play the role of Polly. Wow. Okay. Man, that was the one that I was like, nah, that's off the table. I, Dude, literally you said that and I like fist pumped silently <laughs> in the air. <laughs> I was like, I nailed him. Oh, man. All right. I'm down to two and three on the season. Well done, Brad. Thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. I honestly, it was the fact that I I literally was like Peter Boyle 100% could have been Polly. <laughs> All right. I want to get back into talking about the movie. Can you give me 30 seconds on the score? What would you think of what Bernard Herrmann did here? Well, I mean, to start, we we just finished last season. It was like one of the last movies, uh, If Beale Street Could Talk. Mm. And that entire score was based off of Taxi Driver. Wow, I never put two and two together, but 
I can see that. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah, like literally as soon as this movie started, I was like, oh, Beale Street. Like, they 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 did it. They they did the same song. The whole <laughs> they, they did the thing, yeah. <laughs> they did the thing. Uh, so obviously it inspired somebody. Um, I think that the music in this movie is one of the most important facets of the film. Yeah. Because if if anybody who has seen a few Scorsese films knows anything about him, he plays popular music in his movies, and he does it better than almost any other director out there. And yet in this one, there's almost nothing to be heard of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Scorsese talks about this, that Bickle doesn't listen to popular music. Like, they make a point of saying that he doesn't own a record player. And so it would make sense that this person who is insulated from society would not be listening to the music that society is listening to. And you would have this really dark, dissonant soundtrack Mm -hmm. of his life Mm -hmm. if he had a soundtrack. And Herman just knocks it out of the park. The wonderful thing about it is, I mean, there's a couple little... Uh, like off kilter dissonant chords that are played throughout the movie. But for the most part, it's only two themes. And the second theme is the one that's like more ominous sounding. But the one, the thing I love about it is that that theme always resolves back into the regular kind of jazzy sounding. I guess you could almost call it like the romantic theme because it's, it's like when Travis is in an okay state of mind and when Travis isn't, and you Mm -hmm. get that impression right off the bat with the opening credits Scorsese is doing this really beautiful thing with the camera where it's getting kind of like weirdly streaky and you can tell that it's signifying that Travis is already in an unstable state of mind. And the the score is just going back and forth between that saxophone heavy, you know, uh, jazz improv type score and then the really ominous dissonant score. And it's just whiplashing back and forth. It does it throughout the movie. And I think it really, really helps sell the idea that Travis is going back and forth through these states of mind. Yeah, it, it is probably one of the most, I don't know, important soundtracks to a movie. Mm-hmm. This movie is hard to watch. Uh, I'll just put it out there. It is innately able to draw you in and like you want to watch the whole thing. But as you're watching it, it is a really difficult film to watch. And one of the key aspects of that is the score that Herman composes, that it mm-hmm. pushes you away from him as a character. And yet it weirdly explains who he is through music. And I, man, I just don't know if many composers are able to do that the way he does in this. Yeah. All right, man. I have a lot more notes to go over. I know we're running long today. But where do you want to go next? I know you had mentioned before we went to break, Paul Schrader. Do we want to just do the, the Paul Schrader thing now? Yeah, let, let's talk about it, man, because everything I read in my research for Two Facts and a Falsehood uh, pointed to the fact that he basically lived the life of Travis Bickle for a while. Yep. And he's, he started writing this script as a way to try and, like, distance himself from the things that he wanted to do. Yeah, to, like, exercise that demon. Yeah. And like, I don't know, man, like, I think that there is a difference between wanting to do something bad and doing the bad thing. Uh, Like, I'd much rather you write about doing a bad thing than doing the bad thing itself. But it does make you wonder. 
Oh my gosh! <laughs> like yeah. the the darkness in his soul. So and now he is to the point where he's directing movies, and he made a film a few years back called First Reformed, which is one of the most critically loved movies of the last decade. That I it, I didn't get down with First Reformed. He makes the same movie like every time he makes a movie. And it, it has become kind of the Paul Schrader cliche that they talk about his main characters are always, as Travis calls himself, God's lonely man. Like they are these, whether it's sexually frustrated or otherwise frustrated male figures that want to resort to violence and have this like complex, disturbing psyche. That's every movie he makes. And uh, I think this is the best version of that. I think this is the best distillation of that. But yeah, man, I have like point after point in my notes here of Penny Marshall, the director, saying that she knew Paul back in those days and that he had a an anal compulsive point of view about suicide, that he was going to put a gun in his mouth and pull the trigger, but wrap a towel around his head so he didn't make a mess. Like he just talked about these things all the time. Apparently, he was going and looking at the porno movies every every other night because he couldn't sleep. He was do- you're, you're right. He was doing the Travis Bickle lifestyle. But what I found really interesting was that. As a result of this being kind of such a a blatant and like nakedly obvious thing that it was it was autobiographical, that it drew a lot of the same things out in Scorsese and De Niro. And Scorsese's gone on record saying, like, we didn't talk about it during the course of this movie, but every one of us found something in the way Travis saw the world and saw that he didn't fit in and that he was rejected that we channeled into the movie. To the point where apparently De Niro said at one point, like, I wanted to write a script about a guy who was lonely and walking around New York City with a gun. And then he found Taxi Driver. So, you know, Mm. Paul Schrader was in a a very fragile state of mind, but apparently so were a lot of the people working on this movie. That doesn't worry me at all. No, (laughs) not not even a little bit. Well, I think it speaks to to what I mentioned at the start of the episode, that this movie is incredibly prescient. And I, I, like, I don't want this to come across as like facetious or looking down on anyone. But I think that if you if you made this movie in 2022, it would start off the same way it starts off. But about halfway through, uh, Bickle would get online and somehow find himself as a member of the Proud Boys. Mm. You know what I mean? Like th- the interesting thing about this movie is that. It talks about isolation and loneliness in a way that not many movies do, and it gives the male perspective on usually what will happen when you are isolated and lonely. Yeah. And I, and I think that what it's trying to tell you is that humans need community to be healthy. They, they need people around them to give them hope and purpose and like a why for for why they are living their life. And uh, unfortunately, Bickle's not able to find that and he snaps. And the the fascinating thing is that, you know, in a in a very Wolf of Wall Street-esque way, at the end of the film, he he treats Bickle like a hero. He shows how the media treats him mm-hmm. as if he saved this little girl and you know, which he did. Uh but they they don't try to investigate what really was going on. They just go, oh, he killed these pimps yep. and he's a good guy now. Yep. And he's really pointing out to the audience, trying to say, 
yeah, but you can't just glorify violence because he's still going to be violent in the end. He might be reformed for a minute because he satiated his bloodlust, but he's going to meet more pimps. He's going to meet more prostitutes who need protection, and he's still going to do evil things. And so the solution is not to go on a on a you know blood filled rampage. The solution is to find healthy people around you. But what does he do at the end of the movie? He turns that away once again. Yeah, he goes right back to it. And and you're right. And this was something Schrader intended that he talks about how this was intended to be a criticism of the media. And he said characters like Travis are justified by publicity. If you're on the cover of Newsweek even like squeaky from, then you're important. The reason why you're on the cover of Newsweek is unimportant. And Scorsese like kind of echoed that. He talked about how he wanted the ending of the movie to not come across as sentimental. Like he knew that Sybil Shepard was going to get back in the cab and they were going to kind of share this moment and nod at each other and go off their merry ways. But he's like, I don't want this to come across as like a tacky ending. And so he inserted that one last little shot where you can tell that he kind of speeds up the film stock a little bit. Like De Niro looks in the rearview mirror and whips his head around and then he adjusts the rearview mirror to signify that he's looking at something and it gives that cool like uh, reflective effect to the whole thing. And it just tells you he's a he's a ticking time bomb. Like this is all going to happen again. And everyone thinks he's an okay guy because he did something that we deem as heroic, but no one knows the reason that he did it was because he wasn't able to do a murder suicide. And the reason he wasn't able to do the murder suicide is because he couldn't assassinate the politician before that. Like it didn't matter what explosive act of violence Travis ultimately was going to do, at least in his mind. But the way that the media is portraying it is like, oh, he went to save this girl and it couldn't be further from the truth, really. Right. And I I think that's why I I don't want to be like too darker or dour, but look at the movie we're talking about. Uh, If you look at today's society, I think that we have a lot of really lonely people Mm -hmm. uh, who are very isolated from others. If you look at literally any amount of research on what blue screens do to our brains and how they fry our dopamine receptors and how people can't feel pleasure and they can't enjoy relationships. There's this pattern of isolation where the isolated person feels and thinks that they aren't worth being in a relationship with, you know, whether that's not, not a romantic relationship, whether it's any kind of relationship, a friendship, romantic, a family, their, you know, their parents, their brothers or sisters. And so they think they're not worth it. And so they do things that make them not worth being in a relationship with. And and it spirals. And I, I think that Taxi Driver is literally the story of a lot of these shooters that we've seen over the past 10 years or so that have really sprung up in America. Yep. And it's it's terrifyingly sad. Mm-hmm. I, like I like I said, I don't want to be too dark and 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 stuff, but I don't know, Bob. That that's kind of where my heart was at the end of this movie. One of the things I like the most about this film, though, and it's from a directing and a writing standpoint, is that Travis is not a guy who's super intelligent, right? I mean, it's just pretty obvious that he he doesn't know a lot, but he also doesn't know how to express himself very well. And yet, throughout the movie, he's he recognizes that there's something rising up inside of him. And at least at first, he doesn't want it to come out. And so he starts saying things from the very beginning of the movie. He tells somebody, I get headaches and sometimes they never go away. And I'm like, well, that's a huge red flag, you know? 
But then, and then he has that. Then he has that scene with Peter Boyle where he tells him, "I just want to do really bad things." And Peter Boyle is like, "Yeah, I don't understand what you're talking about." Like, and then he and then he says the worst advice ever, which is like, "Yeah, we're all screwed anyway. So, like, what difference does it make?" And I'm like, "Oh, don't tell this guy that. That's the (laughs) that's a terrible idea." But Scorsese really loved that scene because he thought that it demonstrated that Bickle's not a smart guy and he's trying to give voice to this and no one's listening. And then it gets to the point where the famous scene of the film where Bickle is in his apartment by himself practicing shooting a gun and he's portraying himself as like this hero who's in a Western showdown talking to somebody in an alley. And, you know, he says the famous line, are you you talking to me? You talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. And, you know, kapow, basically. But Scorsese says that was all improv by Robert De Niro. And they were running so long over schedule that like his assistant director was pounding on the door in between takes and saying, like, stop, we got to move on to the next thing. And he said he finally got to the point where he said, I'm the only one here. And Scorsese loved that so much because he thought that it was the character basically admitting to himself that he's talking to himself. You know, he's framing it as if like, well, it's just me and you here in this dark alley. But he's really admitting I'm fighting against my inner demons, even if Travis Mm -hmm. isn't aware that that's what he's confessing. Yeah. Bob, this movie's just really, really good. Yeah, man. Uh, Like, I just I really can't get over it. I don't know if it's just because I was expecting it to be bad. Uh, Not necessarily bad, but I was expecting it to be something I didn't like. And so to come into it and be so impressed with what they did and how they portrayed the sickness of loneliness and the the self-perpetuating cycle of isolation, I was just stunned. I got to say this, my only nitpick with the movie, and it's not even a nitpick because I think that this is one of the best American movies of the 70s, and it's very close to being perfect. But I wish that they had introduced his first few scenes with Jodie Foster earlier in the movie. Yeah. Because it is building in such a tense way that it is almost like overbearing and you know there's going to be this explosion of violence. And then all of a sudden, Jodie Foster's character comes in and they take about a 25-minute detour where they go out to this diner and they have a nice, like the scene is really well done where he's finding out more about Iris. But De Niro's demeanor in that scene is is probably the most normal that you see Travis behave throughout the film. And then he gets to the point where it cuts back to his apartment and he's plotting to kill Palantine again. And you're like, wait a minute, like he's still doing that thing. And then he's putting money in an envelope for Iris as like a goodbye. And I just kind of wish that if they had started introducing that earlier in the movie, then you could still leave the stuffing an envelope for Iris in at the place that it's in. And it's a callback at that point. But it almost felt like inserting those few scenes of Jodie Foster took me out of the tension of the movie a little bit. I don't know if you had that same experience, but that was like the one thing that kept this from being a pitch perfect movie to me. Yeah, I think that part of it was the fact that you told me beforehand that like, oh, yeah, by the way, Jodie Foster is a 12 year old hooker. And so I was, you know, justifiably, I was kind of on the lookout for that, like. Like, when sure. when do I have to watch Jodie Foster be a hooker? Because I'm not really pumped about that. Right. And it just, it took so long to get there that by the time it gets there, it, it, it almost loses its impact a little bit. And you're right, it takes away from the tension of the film. Um, So I, I'm with you there. I think the other part for me was 
I don't know what happened during the the final gunfight, but it just felt really clunky and like not smooth. Yeah, and like yeah, like I and and not in the way that I would expect them to like, you know, perform a John Wick shootout. Like I, like I'm not expecting them to have that level of cinematography or. Uh, sorry, not even level, like quality of film. Like, you know, they're yeah. making this in the 70s. It was a little harder to do it back then. But it felt really weird to me. I Like, did you notice that? Yeah, so that's where the movie earned its X rating. And Scorsese was not wanting to budge at all. And the studio basically said, hey, you make all these cuts or we will. And eventually Scorsese convinced them that I can remove a few frames from the guy getting his hand blown apart and then what I'll do is I'll take that whole sequence and I'll like desaturate it a little bit. And you can really tell there's like a hard cut in the movie. Travis is weaving in and out of traffic. And then they cut to a shot where he pulls in front of the building and the movie looks completely different. And like that, it looks like the film stock is worse there. But it's because Scorsese really toned down the brightness and the the saturation mm. of that whole thing. But I'm with you. I kind of feel like even though he says he only removed a few frames there's a shot of Jodie Foster kind of turning around when she hears the gunshots and they play that same shot two times. And the whole thing has this very kind of dreamlike effect. And yeah. I've seen I've seen a lot of people speculate about, like, is this kind of just Travis Bickle's fever dream as he's like dying or, you know, what is going on there? Because it has a different rhythm and feel than the rest of the movie. But you're right. It there are there are parts of it that feel kind of stitched together in a way that the rest of the movie didn't. And I, I feel like a really smooth, like, gun battle at the end there would have almost served to highlight the brutality of the violence a little bit better to just show it almost as if, like, a security camera was was filming it, that it would have just highlighted how violent and cruel shooting someone with a gun is mm. instead you're right it takes on this dreamlike quality that almost like highlights and and makes it more fantastical than it should be so i that that was probably one of the few complaints i had about the movie overall though i gotta say for being such a low budget movie this movie looks amazing and especially since they've restored it and you know put it in hd now but it's so clear, even from his early films, that Scorsese was such a master at moving the camera, just like Spielberg, but in a different way. The, Scorsese's camera is so much more frenetic, but they were doing so many inventive things. There's a number of times where the camera is mounted to the hood of the cab outside the cab. And every, you know, every time someone leans down to talk to Travis, the camera follows them down into the window. It's just such a well-made movie. Brad, I mean, I'm going to go ahead and give my final score here. I I want to give it a 10 because I really do think it's one of the best American movies of the 70s. But it's not perfect. And I do think there the structural issue with the Jodie Foster stuff interrupting the tension. I'm going to give it a nine and a half. But I probably appreciate it more than a 9.5 would indicate. Yeah, I, I'm with you, man. I think I'm going to give it a nine and a half. Uh, I think that this is a nearly perfect movie that tells an incredibly important story and and explores just a really valuable theme in our society today that that more people need to understand. Mm -hmm. uh, more people need to see the dangers of of what can happen when people are isolated. 
You know, I'm even thinking about like when you said that Peter Boyle gives literally the worst advice in the world. I I think if I can end on on a somewhat sappy note, I I don't know if we've earned that over six seasons (laughs) of uh, podcasting. But I, I think that my advice for somebody if they came to me in that place would be to sit down with them and just say, hey, like, you're right. This world is really dark and bad. Like, what's going on in your life? Like, talk to me. Let's mm. let's have a discussion about this. Let's go grab a cup of coffee. Let's mm-hmm. figure this out because the the weight of this world is far too much for any one soul to bear. And if we don't have a community around us asking us questions, uh, you know, trying to help us, then, you know, we're we're all in for it, man. A- any of us could be a Travis Bickle. Yesterday, I was reading uh, a book review of this new book that's coming out, and the it's by a historian who basically charted a bunch of sermons by Protestant ministers from the from post World War II to today, and they were all sermons that followed natural or national disasters. So Pearl Harbor you know, into 9-11, into mass Hmm. shootings and, you know, police brutality, all these sorts of things. The Kennedy assassination. Yes. And and this person basically found that over the course of the last however many decades, that at first pastors would be urging their congregations, you know, in light of the fact that this horrific evil and violence exists in the world to examine themselves. And they were asking them, what role do we each play in creating a culture where this kind of violence happens? Like you're not to blame for what this person decided to do, but we're all to blame for letting this culture become what it has. And mm-hmm. by the time you get to like the early 2000s, they're not asking that of their congregations anymore. And they're basically just saying like, let's go to war. <laughs> and it's like, it's really kind of scary the way that that, introspection has disappeared from every facet of life and apparently even from American churches. And I couldn't shake that watching this movie that I think one of the questions to ask yourself after watching this is not just like, how does a Travis Bickle get formed? But what role have I played in creating a culture where Travis Bickles are being created? And so Mm -hmm. that's I mean, that's kind of the takeaway that I get from this movie, Brad. I was truly blown away with this this time. And I'm really anxious to see what Film and Whiskey Nation thinks of it. Yeah, if you want to jump into the conversation, we like we really want to hear from you guys on this one. I this like if there's like an epitome of the movement from a popcorn pleasing movie into like deep hard introspection, <laughs> it's uh, Jurassic Park into Taxi Driver yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> but I uh, I really want to know what Film and Whiskey Nation thinks about this. So if you want to talk to us about it, you can jump onto our social medias, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Film Whiskey. Or you can join the conversation on our Discord. We put a link to our Discord server at the end of every single one of our show notes. In addition to that Patreon channel we mentioned earlier, we also have public channels where every member of Film and Whiskey Nation can communicate with each other. And I'd love to hear what you thought of Taxi Driver. Next week, we're going to be back with part two of our Scorsese miniseries, looking at the 1980 film Raging Bull. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.